Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. We go a little long this week, heroes, but I think you'll enjoy it. Mark Richardson digs into the mechanics of Headspace, which is his shared consciousness cyberpunk game that's powered by the apocalypse. But you might not have recognized it underneath all of the cool stuff he's built. So let's get to the show. Joining me this week is Mark Richardson, uh, the creator of Headspace, a cyberpunk RPG. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and maybe a little bit about the game? Uh, okay, uh, my name is Mark Richardson. I'm the owner of Green Hat Designs, and I've been working on my first RPG for the last three years, and it's called Headspace. It's uh, shared consciousness cyberpunk. And uh, if you've seen the show Sense8, I mean, that's this <laughs> is the easy pitch, is it Sense8 meets Blade Runner. If you haven't, it's a game where the entire party has shared consciousness. You could think of it like uh, Wi-Fi to the brains. Uh, you can share your skills to accomplish things in a very uh, heroic, uh, fighting the corporation's kind of dark future. Uh, but when you share other people's skills, you take their emotional baggage into your scene, and it changes things in bad ways, uh, I guess would be the best way. So the, the, it's emotionally complicated, powered by the apocalypse. Nice, which I, I feel like... A lot of uh, Powered by the Apocalypse kind of specializes in emotionally complicated, but this definitely takes it to the next level. Yeah, well, so it, it, it's, I mean, I, I, I've uh, definitely done a number on Apocalypse World, I guess, with this. Like, I've done, uh, yes. I mean, I think, uh, I know I listened to um, Andrew Medeiros talk about, uh, I, I believe it was on your, your podcast, mm-hmm. right? And he talked about hacking Apocalypse World. And I'm a big fan that when you hack something, uh, you... If if the game gets in the way of your design, then you cut the game. You know, like that, whoa, well, you can't do that. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. yes, I can. It's my game. Um, it's a tool. Like, it's a box. It's, you're, you're taking out parts of the engine. And in some cases, uh, I sort of feel, at least with Headspace, there's parts where I feel like I may have inadvertently re-put together the car. Um, but, uh, I, I think it generally works. It, it gives a different, it has a different, slightly different feel than I think maybe sort of traditional Apocalypse World games. Um, okay. and part of that is, I think also just the sort of emergent property that there is no private information in the game. Yeah. That is an interesting quality to this, which I definitely want to touch on. Uh, and so this is your first game? Uh, yeah. So I, um, I've been, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've been hacking games. Like, I've always run games for years and years and years. And, you know, I mean, I started in Dungeons and Dragons and Robotech and stuff like that in high school. And, like, I've always changed and and tweaked games and stuff like that to make them what I want them to be. But uh, a good friend of mine, Jason Pitt, uh, who runs Genesis of Legend Publishing and did Spark and whatnot, he works down the hall from me in my government office. (laughs) And uh, he was like, oh, man, you got to go down to Gen Con. You got to design your own game. You got to do all this. So he got me into Game Chef, and I, I did this really terrible game for Game Chef called The Freezer, which was all about uh, – I was like a hard SF journey to the – journey to a, like a colonial mission. And during the colony voyage, the colonial citizens had this – uh, shared consciousness implantation. Um, and when they woke up, they were like the ultimate team to get to work on the planet. Mm. And that was the core concept that I brought into Headspace. Um, everything else was purged with fire because it was terrible. <laughs> uh, but when I went to Gen Con way back in 2013, 
there was sort of a, a, a late night gaming with with uh, several people, several other designers, including Eloy Lasanta, and he challenged me to pitch my game idea. And I was like, but I'm not really doing game design. It's kind of like, and he's like, no, just pitch it. And so I pitched it. And it was like the worst pitch of my life because it was the first pitch of my life. <laughs> uh-huh. And then for the next like two hours, uh, going to like, I don't know, th- some ungodly time at night, all the other designers were, we were pitching and sort of spitballing ideas on how this game could work. Um, and so that was when it sort of the dream given form. And then it just trundled along. Uh, I mean, it took me a long time because I had to learn everything. Like it's uh, army of one kind of publishing. So uh, it, it, it was uh, certainly an experience, but I'm now actually, you know, with my hands, no one else can see this, but yeah. I am holding a printed <laughs> copy of my book. Uh, so it's been, it's been a quite a journey. Um, yeah. And, and my office smells like printing right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's a good smell, I think in this case. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. it's, it's very distinctive. Cool. So we have actually on the show done a lot of games that were uh, being kickstarted as we did the episode. So we haven't really had the opportunity to ask this yet, but Headspace has been kickstarted. It was kickstarted last October. Yeah, I kickstarted it in October. I had about a, uh, it's a Canadian kickstarter because I live in mm-hmm. Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had about a, geez, you think I'd remember this number. I think it's about a $4,000 or $5,000 Canadian goal. And I funded in about 17 hours, which really blew me away (laughs) since I had no other games before this. And uh, in the end, I hit uh, 24,400 funded all seven stretch goals that I had even vaguely planned out. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I got about 750 some odd backers uh, enough that I could do like a a full offset print run of my final book, uh, bring on some extra talent, uh, you know, add more art, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, and then spend a little bit more time on the game and and just get it really sort of humming the way I wanted it to. But yeah. And then that was in the fall. And then um, I guess about, Last month or so, um, the prints came off the printer. Mm-hmm. Had some hiccups. Um, uh, the <laughs> yeah. books were the books were printed, and I got about six hundred of them here, and then the other four hundred went down to my distributor, Magpie Games. And in the process, through uh, we'll say an act of God, um, there will be. I don't want to point fingers. I know I, I have a good idea what happened, but. Um, uh, FedEx basically between the shipping and FedEx, uh, they basically shot my books out of a cannon. Um, so they more or less arrived in tatters. I believe two of the boxes in uh, FedEx delivered them in a plastic bag. Uh, so the printer has uh, accepted responsibility for this, irrelevant of who is to blame, and they're going to reprint all 400 books. They're going to ship them again. So I'm not out any money, which is great. Uh, yeah. But uh, it is unfortunate because my backers' uh, copies will not be going out until probably early August now instead of probably arriving this week. So uh, it sucks. Yeah. But I will have, oddly enough, the books that were destined for Gen Con arrived intact. So I okay. will be selling this game at Gen Con. So if you are going to Gen Con, I'll be at booth 2311, I believe. It's the Indie Game Developer Network booth. Cool. Uh, and I'll be selling the game uh, and some of the accessories that I funded in the Kickstarter. Excellent. And uh, and it's available as a PDF too, right? Yeah, you can get it drive through. Cool. Um, it's uh, $10 US for the PDF, and that has oh, everything so, you need to play the game. So for anybody who missed out, they will have options, which is awesome. Totally. Um, so having come out the other end, how completely bananas is running a Kickstarter? Um, I both never want to do it again, <laughs> and no, certainly I will have to. Kickstarter is... Uh, uh, I, <laughs> 
Ryan Macklin said it best. It was it's an unrelenting force. Uh, it, it, there is no it, it, like there is a there's no high or really low. It's just continuous. Like it's thirty days. And like the first day or two, you're super excited. And obviously, if you fund quickly, you're super excited. And then you're just like, you kind of hit this weird middle high or mm-hmm. middle low, depending on how you want to half glass, half full. And then you coast for 30 days in various states of, you know, oh, my God, somebody just backed. Oh, my God, somebody unbacked, you know. Uh, and then you're constantly doing promotion and you're you know, you just sell, you sell crazy for 30 days. And if you're not comfortable with that, you probably don't want to run a Kickstarter, but like you, you did. And you know, I, I, it's like everyone who followed me on social media was like, okay, for the next 30 days, he's going to be impossible because he's just going to be like, buy my thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, but it was really cool. It was exciting. Um, things I, I mean, there's things I would do differently. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I would do very, you know, similar. I mean, one of the smartest things I did was, uh, I, I brought on uh, Mark D.S. Truman, who runs Magpie Games, to be essentially a project manager on the Kickstarter itself. So he helped me mm. um, sort of situate myself, plan my finances, uh, you know, figure thing, figure out everything so that I don't screw myself in the long run. Um, and then, you know, manage expectations and run it as a proper business rather than like a hobby. Because the whole goal was to get enough money to make the game but then also have enough money that I'm not a broke um, and B, I can kind of make something else after this. So well, I'm, I'm glad you survived. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see what happens if you've got to do another one. The other thing that I was super curious about is you've mentioned Sense8 as being like one of the easy pitches to like I- I explain Headspace to people. You've alluded that Headspace mechanic has been the core of the game since it started as that Game Chef game, right? Yeah. Where where does that come from? Um, it, it, it doesn't come. From, it doesn't come from Sense Eight, right? Because that came out like uh, as you year. were planning this Kickstarter. Yeah, pretty I would well. imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of people go like, "You made this based on Sense Eight. I'm like, "That's it's one like... hell of a development timeline," you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, actually, my my main. Uh, I would say I would credit my main sort of influence to uh, a book from the 50s um, by John Wyndham called The Chrysalids, which is about a bunch of uh, young children, sort of teenagers who are ostracized from society because they exhibit mutations. And in their mutations, they have telepathic communications. And so they develop this telepathy powers to communicate. So it's like a hidden mutation that can't quite be seen on like, you know, like I have six toes or something like that. And they go on the run from sort of civilization and a bunch of things happen. And, and so I read that book oh, years and years ago. And then I was running a game called Cyber Generation. I don't know if you've heard of this. Have you, oh, yeah, okay. So Basically, there's in, in role-playing games, there's always sort of two kinds of people, it seems, who play Cyberpunk. There's people who grew up on Shadowrun, and there's uh-huh. people who grew up on Cyberpunk 2020. I was a Cyberpunk 2020 kid, and I've never in my life played Shadowrun. I'm sorry, but, you know, yeah. it's just the way it is. <laughs> uh, you go, you play the games that other people run for you at, at certain times. And so uh, I played a lot of Cyberpunk 2020, and uh, they came out with this game uh, later uh, called Cyber Generation, which was all about children with mutate, mutate, techno, techno, nanotechnology mutations fighting against corporate control and stuff like that. And I decided to run it myself for my local group. And I was like, oh, well, this chrysalis thing that I just finished reading, this would be cool. I'm going to give everybody like nanotechnology shared uh, like telepathy. So I didn't have any skill sharing. I just played an entire campaign where their superpower was being able to talk to each other. 
but not being able to be tracked. So you, you, everybody had like constant Wi-Fi and all mm-hmm. these communication stuff. And also like there was like people were like, you know, someone would have dreams and those dreams would float into somebody else's scene or so it was just feeding on that idea. And then I just kind of that was the origin of the ideas. And then I, you know, like, you know, like you run a campaign, you're like, all right. And you put that in the up on the library and then you go off and run D&D for years. And uh, when I got back and when I got into game design, I was like, well, this was always kind of a cool idea. And I was like, well, well, let's try that. And then I started playing around with it. And then having played more indie games at the time, um, you know, that are more playing with emotions and less kind of like, um, not to say less crunchy, but like less, um, you know, I roll the hit kind of things. Yeah. Um, I started thinking, all right, well, what would be the what would be the meaty part of this? And then I was like, oh, the meaty part is, uh, you know, like people have emotional baggage and uh, like, OK, so I'm a cold blooded like I'm a, like the perfect assassin has no problem shooting everybody. But maybe he has deep seated emotional problems with, I don't know, P- PTSD with something that happened in a war. Like he's kind of dealt with his own stuff. Like he's compartmentalized that and put that there. But I'm like, well, if you tapped into this guy's brain and pulled that into your scene, like, so you're as good a gunfighter as that guy, but you take on this weird PTSD stuff that you've never dealt with. You, you suddenly you're flooded with this anger that you can't control, that you don't know what it's from and it has to express itself. And so uh, in headspace, um, I mean, so I guess I should probably, I mean, this is a hacking show, so I should probably mm-hmm. talk about how kind of the game works. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> so basically in Headspace, there's no basic moves. Um, there's right, which uh, is a staple of, of a lot of apocalypse world. Yeah. So there's no basic games, moves yeah. and there's also no, depending how you look at it, uh, I guess it would be a different wording. There's no yeah. sort of specific playbook moves. Uh, right. The, the moves themselves are almost kind of separated as like a tier of activity the players interact with. Uh, depending what you're doing and who you're doing, it's a move, but it may be a different kind of move depending on who you are, which sounds really confusing now that I just said that. But <laughs> basically what it comes down to is in when you play Headspace, uh, each player has three skills. Uh, uh, there are six different operators, uh, which sort of represent the large gamut of badass Jason Bourne types from, you know, your tech who's a master of engineering and drone control and hacking to your Ronin who can blow everything up, shoot everything up uh, to your infiltrator who has stealth skills and all this stuff. So the idea is each skill you have, you are like the best in the world. Um, You are quite literally Jason Bourne equivalent. You know, if you get into a fight and you're the Ronin, it's not a question about whether or not you're going to be able to shoot your way out. Your problem will probably be that you'll bump into a locked door and not know what to do because you're the, the guy with the guns. So you, you have these three skills and you're amazing at them. Uh, so if you're, if you're doing, if you're in a scene and you need to do something with one of your three skills, you make what's called a professional move. And professional moves, there is never a question about what's going on that you, there, uh, success is never in question. In fact, uh, it is completely off the table. Um, it is, there is in fact no die roll in a professional move. In a professional move, you say what you want to do and it happens. Uh, if you're the Ronin and there's two guards and you're like, I pull out my pistol and I, you know, cap them in the knees. Okay. What's, what else? That's not important. Like that's not, like it's important to the, to the immediacy of the fiction, but it's not like no one, like you're incredibly badass. That's not like we need to keep going with the story. So it doesn't, it sort of lets players, it's very, um, if you've played Amber, it was certainly inspired by that Mm -hmm. diceless mechanic of just like, no, you're like kind of a gods, at least in this narrow field. 
However, there is a bit of a catch. So uh, there's a thing called uh, sync, which is determines whether or not the group is working well together sort of in sync as a team. Uh, at the beginning of play, the party is out of sync. Uh, mm-hmm. And every time you make a professional move using your own stuff, um, the um, primal emotion that that skill is based on bleeds out into the shared network. So... I'm kind of going at this backwards because I'm explaining moves before the stress track. And so I hope I don't confuse people. But so there's uh, five emotions that make up the game. There is uh, rage, grief, fear, need, and ego. And there's a track that sits in the middle of the table that represents the levels of these emotions in the shared combined space of the entire play of all the players. Mm -hmm. And when you make a professional move and you're not in sync, the emotion linked to your skill goes up by a point. If you are, and every time you use it, so, uh, you know, uh, the, the goal with professional moves isn't to kind of hammer them as a GM. Like, so you wouldn't say, okay, well, every time you shoot your gun, we're going to make you make a professional move. It's sort of like kind of within a scene or whatever. But like you, you know, when there's challenges that need to be brought on or more to the point is the GM, when you want to nudge the stress tracks, you, you say, okay, this is a professional move. And so as the stress tracks kind of chip away, it gives everybody in the game a narrative clue. Okay, well, fear is really high. So I could like role play on edge. Um, and then if the tracks get too high, if they hit a certain level uh, four or above, they feedback and that emotion explodes over across the network and causes what are called emotional complications, which are sort of a series of direct verbal cues, um, you know, uh, that are essentially, I wouldn't say leading questions, they're leading statements. Okay, like you're going to go mm-hmm. do this. Um, and it forces people into doing, uh, I guess, poor uh being really good, but making kind of slightly poor decisions along the way. Complicated success was what a friend of mine said. So mm-hmm. that's how professional moves. Basically, you use it in the fiction to do whatever you want. If the team's working well, um, the the stress tracks don't go up at all, or they only go up the first time you use them. If the team's not working well, they continue to chip away. So if the whole party is obviously using their own only their skills, the stress tracks will stack up a fair bit. And then, of course, the big part of the game is headspace moves. So... You only have three skills, and these skills are unique. So the Ronin's the only one with a firearm skill. The Infiltrator's the only one with a stealth skill, you know, etc. So if you want to use that skill to do something in the fiction, you have to dip into the other person's brain and pull that skill out. Now, you're just as good at them. So success is kind of taken off the table. Um, the biggest sort of hack to Apocalypse World is... The six minus in traditional apocalypse world is always the GM tells you what happens. And I struggled with this in various versions and incarnations of headspace. This continued to persist kind of as an artifact of apocalypse world because it works really well. But the problem was, is it if you sell your game as you are hyper competent and there's like this really decent chance that you outright fail, you're yeah. like, well, it, like, obviously, it's like the GM's going to tell you something interesting that happens that's against what's going on, and this helps build the fiction. But you also kind of feel like you screwed up. And if Jason Bourne misses one out of every, I don't know, five shots, he's still not Jason Bourne. So I ultimately came up with an idea where when you do headspace moves, the the lower your role, you add these emotional complications in, into the fiction. So what you declared you were going to do, like I sneak by the guards, is not in question. But you are going to get emotional pr- uh, uh, prompts. I can grab my book and give an example here. 
Yeah, um, they're really good. <laughs> so these are there are two ways you can play the game. You can either play the game where uh, the GM... I, the default way that, that I like to play is that you give these prompts to the players and they incorporate it into the fiction however they want. Which does a... what it uh, For people who've played Apocalypse World a lot, this game tends to move a lot of the heavy lifting onto the players. Mm-hmm. I've heard from several... More than one GM... I don't really feel like I did a lot of moves or something like this. And I'm like, yeah, that it, it, you're kind of doing it right. Like, the goal is so that the players make their lives really complicated. The, <laughs> the players are functionally making soft moves on themselves. And in some case, like, your job is to kind of build on the complication they have or deal with anything in the outside world. So, for example, if you were using a skill that's grief, um, you have four options. You can put yourself in harm's way hurt someone you care for, you neglect your responsibilities, or you retreat from a conflict. So you would pick one of these things. So you would say, I put myself in harm's way. So you were sneaking by the guards. Okay, so you're going to sneak by the guards, but uh, you get by the guards and you disarm the alarm, and then uh, you're, uh, they're about to notice your friends, so you like give yourself your position away so the guards see you but not your friends. So your friends can get by the guards which was the goal that everybody in the party was trying to do with this, uh, but you are going get, to get caught, which then sort of creates more fiction. The GM should jump on that and treat your life like hell. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, and there's basically four complications for each of the, the, uh, the, the emotions, and they're all different. They're, uh, there's like one or two that are diff- not quite the same, but they're predominantly very different. And so when you do a headspace move, if you're 10 plus, you did, it acts like a professional move. You succeed without emotional complications. You get by the guards, no problem. Uh, in the, in the uh, seven to nine, you get one emotional complication. So you pick one, you make your life a little bit more interesting. And in the failure state, the six minus, you get two complications, which is really hard to do. Like, it's really complicated success. Like, you're probably completely doomed, but, you know, I don't know. You, 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 you killed the two guards, but all hell breaks loose in the, in the mall. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other option you can do is you can also reveal your regret. So each of these characters have these dark, like you're all, like you've been in the corporations for years and years and years, and you've done, you have done dirty deeds, done dirt cheap, and they are terrible. And you don't, these are graves you plan on kept, keep taking to your grave. Uh, but you can re- sort of reveal this this regret as like a carthetic release through a flashback sequence um, through the shared headspace. Um, and everybody experiences that, what happened. Um, and when that happened, when you do this in the game, it creates the, the aforementioned sync from previous times, which allows people to either use professional moves cheap or they can expend it, i.e. the party loses sync and turn any role into a 10. Uh, so if somebody does something really terrible, uh, like falls off a building, you can spend sync to try to save them. Uh, and that's basically how headspace moves. And then the last one is the improvised move, which doesn't tend to get used that often. It, it's, I, I wouldn't say, a, well, I guess it's a bit of a crutch, the system. It, it, it's a thing that needed to be there. Uh, mm-hmm. So improvised moves are basically when, when you don't have anything else, uh, you can use it. And it, it behaves the most like acting under fire. Um, in the mm. sense that, you know, there's still a traditional six minus, uh, failure state where the GM tells you what happens. And even in the, even in the middle ground, the GM tells you what, like you get something out of it and the GM gets something out of it. So it's basically bad all around. 
the most popular way where improvised moves happen is if another player is unconscious or dead, uh, you can't access their headspace. So if you if the Ronin is knocked out, suddenly no one in the party has firearms, but you're stuck in a gunfight. So everyone's making improvised moves, and it, you're trying to find another way. Um, I whether I've had parties like try to parkour themselves out of a gunfight or whatever. So that's like a huge story. That was like a, a massive verbal diarrhea. The, the game has a lot of moving parts, but yeah. when you're playing it, um, it it all sinks in my mind. Yeah. Um, to, to avoid the pun, but with the uh, the key thing was that everything in the game hinges on emotions and always comes back to them. You're, yeah. you're you don't have physical attributes in the game. Your emotions are your stats, and your stats denote how well you control the emotion. Uh, so. Um, one of the things that's interesting are the sort of like comments from people who played a lot of Apocalypse World. Players start with a minus two and a stat, which is one person has said on more than I'm like, oh my god, that's terrible! Like that's really bad. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's really bad because you just can't control that emotion. You have an uh-huh. anger management problem. So the thing is, that's interesting is you don't use your stats in your own skills. So if you have an anger management problem and one of your own skills is based on that anger management problem, you still don't roll dice. So your negative stats don't affect you when you use your own skills. However, if you're trying to grab the uh, runner's pilot skill and maybe he is an angry driver, uh, suddenly you're going to be creating a lot of emotional complications for the party when you use your we use that skill. Yeah. As someone who's played a little bit, I can tell you it is weirdly satisfying to take those emotional complications. Like, you shouldn't want them, probably, as a reasonable person, but they're a lot of fun. I, th- I think it embraces that uh, that play to fail, um, mm-hmm. which is certainly prevalent through Apocalypse World. Uh, that, you, you know, you, there is a... Everyone likes to get screwed over. Um, like, I, I the... Like ten plus is usually kind of the most boring thing that happens in apocalypse world games. The meat, mm-hmm. the meat, the meat of a po- any apocalypse world game that I've ever played has always been the seven and nine. The, the, you get something you want, but you also get at a cost. At a cost. And I, I really like other games like Night Witches, where you know even when you roll the ten, there's still something you don't get that is explicitly in the fiction. And then usually everyone latches on more to what you don't get than what you mm-hmm. actually achieved, and and things kind of go downhill from there. Absolutely, um, and I think it's important to note too. We were talking a lot about how the emotions work in relation to these skills. Something that some folks were talking about on Twitter when I was asking for you know questions and feedback on folks who have gotten the chance to play Headspace is that the character creation is one of their favorite parts because you are making these choices as you go through character creation. Uh, what emotions correspond to which skill? You know, these aren't set; these are. Uh, player decided and they come with some really good questions that tie you to other players so uh, there's um i'll just keep talking so you gotta my friends learned a long time ago you just have to tell them to shut up um but so so yeah so like with character creation i love meaty character creation so headspace the first time you play headspace uh if you have a full group of five players expect to about like if i run this at a convention so when i run this at gen con I will I will have a four hour session. I will have two hours dedicated to character creation, and I will have two hours for the game. And some people are like, "Oh my god, really?" And I'm like, "No, but character creation is play, and so because fun. the game is so important, it's so important in the game to understand the emotional underpinning of where the, some of these skills are that, uh, and you know what your dark regrets are, and all this other stuff." 
I really wanted character creation to educate what happens later. And so if you play this as a one-shot, you'll kind of do a 50-50 split of coming up with this cool character with lots of problems, and frankly, a party of people that have done work together as bad people and done a lot of bad things to each other in the name of the almighty dollar. Um, ultimately, the game is... Um, Headspace diverges from... I would say uh, 1990s era cyberpunk role-playing games like Cyberpunk 2020 and Shadowrun. Uh, this is also a big divergence, I would say, from other like if people ask me like you know other than the the, the shared uh, the um, Headspace network, uh, mm-hmm. what's the difference between my game and say Sprawl? And I would say uh, would and Ham- Sprawl's great. I haven't played it yet. I've read through good portions of it, and Hamish Cameron's been great. Uh, he actually wrote some stuff for one of my uh, expansions that's going to be coming out. Um, nice. But in the the Sprawl is modeled much more after traditional uh, Shadowrun. You're doing operations, and a lot of times you're employed by corporations doing operations against other corporations. Headspace is sort of that you have done that one dirty deed too much and turned your back on the company. So you are a quite literally running a guerrilla war against massive multinational companies. So you are not employed by companies. The the pretense, the I guess the um, sort of accepted part of this game is that your players are you have enough wealth that you can kind of finance at least the beginning of your guerrilla campaign. Um, and after that, you know, obviously the GM's gonna you know, take you for trying to find money to fuel your 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 economic and war against against these companies. But um, in character creation, uh, there's a in each setting for the game. Like basically, the settings are about they're about four or five thousand words each. There's two in the core book. There's a, a Van, the one that I tend to run the most, which was written by Lillian Cohen Moore. It's called Vancouver Aftermath, and it takes place six months after a massive tsunami. Uh, sideswiped uh, the city of Vancouver. Uh, I'm Canadian. My setting has to be the first setting has to be Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other setting is uh, uh, Day Zero in the Promised Land, which was written by Shoshana Kesek, and it takes place in Israel. And it's uh, essentially a drought-stricken Israel where it's gotten so bad that the United Nations has come in and taken over everything. But in order to manage it, they've let the corporations go wild and. Uh, in that setting, the UN governance sort of treaty expires a week into a week after the game officially begins. So basically, Oof. it's complete chaos in terms of who's taking what over and what's going on. Um, and then uh, there are also a series of stretch goals that I did for my uh, uh, Kickstarter, which I got seven of them uh, from a variety of different a- uh, authors: uh, Kira Magrin. Uh, Emily, Emily Care Boss, Will Hindmarch, Adam Koibo, uh, Encho Chagas. I'm going to forget one and it's going to drive me nuts. Um, Hamish Cameron wrote one. I hope I get them all. Okay, I probably missed somebody. <laughs> Apologies. So all of those uh, are going to go actually into a settings book that I'm going to be publishing later this year, which will will be like a, essentially compatible with Headspace, but functionally compatible with any cyberpunk role-playing game because there's very little mechanics in them. Uh, it's really more just like here's five thousand words of cool genre fiction that will you know give you cool NPCs and devious corporations. Yeah, so that, th- these are these companies that your players worked for, and in the settings there is one. There's basically a series of tumultuous events that 
spun the world out of control. Uh, so a massive tsunami or something like that. And then there's longstanding issues that have created consequences for future generations. And then there's a corporate secret. And so the secret is one of the companies in the setting was directly at fault or heavily influenced, like 80% influenced this dark event from, from, from occurring. So uh, the Vancouver tsunamis, mm, 3H Energy was doing geothermal uh, energy experimentation. And when you make your character, your character's regret is that you as players are directly tied as players to these corporate secrets. So your characters had direct hand in why the world is the dystopia it is. You're not just like, oh, I killed a few people. It's like you, um, you know, murdered hundreds in a massive food riot that you knew the company engineered just so they could get future security contracts. And so that's your big regret, your dark guilt that you determine in character creation. Um, and then uh, to go back to the skills, uh, during character creation, as you said, uh, each character has three skills. And each of these skills has a very, very bad leading question that you ask to the party, which is kind of different. So these are, um, I wanted to make a really uh, tricky and difficult, like not hard character creation, but something that was not just like uh, bonds or like not what it was. I didn't want something that was like a checkbox. Like you and I are loyal. Uh, I wanted like something that had some real teeth to it. Like I spied on your family for the company for years and years and years and you never knew. What do you mean? Wait, I never knew. You know, like, uh, and so the, the questions are these leading questions about things your character did. They can be heroic. They might not be. Uh, I mean, as an example, let me just grab a random party member here. We'll take our tech. These questions are tied to each specific skill. So uh, the tech has drones, and his question he would ask to the party is, who doesn't know uh, I used to monitor their family for a corporation? And so the party gets to decide as a group, oh, who wants to take this terrible thing? And usually somebody will have some idea. Oh, well, I've already done something, some terrible thing, so maybe the company's keeping an eye on me. And so then you write in and you come up with some fiction together on what you were spying on what was coming out of it. And then the question that the, the GM poses to the person asking the question is, how did that make you feel? And they decide between one of the five emotions, uh, rage, grief, fear, need, ego, what emotion was how they felt about what happened. And so maybe like I was angry that uh, I was monitoring your family because you were actually a really good guy. So I would just say that, and then I put rage down on on the on the skill. Or maybe I was obsessed with making sure that you didn't find out that I was doing this, and so maybe I have like this big fear that you're going to find out. And you can answer these questions however you want. There's no real hard coding on it. Um, mm -hmm. And so the players do this sort of round robin style. So if you play with three people, you can pass this process in a lot faster than with five. And you do it three times. And what happens is uh, people will then allocate these emotional baggages and you'll end up with a sort of decent spread of baggage across the party. One thing that a lot of people notice is that on your character sheets, everybody's skills are listed on your character sheet. So you're filling out this and you can, so you can see everyone's skills and all of the baggages and what's going to happen when you use them. Uh, and then later on, you're going to decide, okay, what skills. So depending on what your stats are, like if there's a bunch of skills that are rage, you know, you can then look at your character and go, well, do I really want to have trouble with those skills? Uh, and even the thing is, 
you're only going to, you're not going to have trouble in the traditional sense. Like you're not going to miss what you did or mm-hmm. not be able to drive the car, but you're going to have problems in the narrative. And so sometimes you might say, you know, like when I'm using explosives, I just don't want narrative problems, you know? Um, and so you would put, you know, maybe a better stat on whatever uh, emotion was based on that. Cool. So there's a lot of these interlocking parts in this in headspace with the the emotions and they correlate to baggage, to the skills, to all these things that feel so very far removed from base apocalypse world. What did this game look like? Like when you started running it at Metatopia, like what did this game look like? Oh, you mean when it was Cortex? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was an early uh, like pre-rules I had. Like I knew that there was some kind of sharing of stuff. So I was like, well, maybe people had dice. And then I was looking at Cortex and I was like, well, in Cortex, you have a lot of dice. And so you could have dice for skills. And then maybe when you use another Mm. player's skill, you take some of their dice into your pool and stuff like this. And uh, I was at Metatopia and Kenneth Height was in a focus group discussing this. And I still don't really remember the words, mostly because they weren't nice, but they were something along the lines (laughs) of this sucks. The math isn't going to work. And, um, which was great because I stopped working on it and just, we started looking at like, well, what's really going on? You know, okay, well, this is happening. Um, I struggled with it for a long time and I was speaking with my developmental editor, John Adamus, and we were just spitballing, like just talking on Google plus one night Mm -hmm. and he was working on a game with apocalypse world. And I was like, Oh, I guess, but the problem with apocalypse world from the perspective of this game was in traditional apocalypse world, you have a series of basic moves, which is cool, but you also have the things that make you separate and distinct. You have all sorts of, each character, each playbook has like, you know, a bunch of moves that are really cool. Mm. Now imagine, imagine headspace where every player had say, let's say, let's be nice and say each player had four character moves or three character moves even. Okay. Like the number of skills, Mm. each of these all function entirely differently. You know, they all have an entire move set with very specific seven and nines, very specific ten pluses. So you would, as a player, have to know all, like, if you had a party of five people, you would have to know something like, well, 15 permutations of other people's skills you could pull into the fiction. And so I was just like, <laughs> no one's going to want to do that. It's like, it's like playing, I love Fate. But one of the problems fate has is aspect bloat. You know, you can, the human brain can, uh, certainly a player and a GM for that matter, can only keep track of so much at a time. And more than about three, and it's like adios munchachos, you, you're just like, you will forget, like, you're going to remember the big thing about the bad guy. You're not going to remember the other 10 things you wrote down. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you have a whole bunch of other things, God help you. And so I was, that was my, I rammed up against that with Apocalypse World. And I was like, well, it sounds really cool, but like, how's that going to work? And then I was like, well, what if the skills are just like more like traditional skills? Like, I mean, when you think about it, so like Headspace is like functionally, I'm using the skill skill systems like you would find in, I don't know, Call of Cthulhu or old role-playing games. You need to make an awareness check to determine what happens. So I basically just said, all right, well, if they're all skills, skills function kind of the same way. They're interlocking. You you know, explosives is obviously different than than drive, but they you you if the fun if the underlying mechanic was what stayed the same, you're just sort of pulling out plugs and going, okay, well instead of using explosives, I'm using this. And I was like, okay, well players could remember that. Like if they had a few specific things to do, you and if those were the moves, uh, then 
you know, you could just plug in the skills you were doing at the time. And so that was kind of how it bore, became, I guess, started. And it went through a lot of playtesting. Um, and there was some terrible playtests that I'm really happy no one else, only so many people saw. Um, there well, those was. Are the best ones. <laughs> oh my God. Um, it, it was, there was so many things. It was really tricky getting stress tracks to work just right getting them to push but not too hard. Like, I mm-hmm. early iterations, it would be like, you know, you play four hours and no one gets feedback, and you're like, well, that's not fun. Um, but then you also, then, then I had, like, extreme versions where it was, like, happening every three seconds, and I'm like, well, this is the reverse of fun because now no one can do anything. Um, and I struggled a lot with the failure state of Apocalypse World, was that I kept coming back to this, the six-minus state of, of Apocalypse World creates a world which... Even if it's not absolute failure, the, it's a, so it's an emotional, it's an emotion the player feels when they're playing the game. If I roll low, I failed. And so I had various iterations of the game where even, even, um, for a long time, professional moves were still a roll. And even the failure state was, uh, what was the failure state? The failure state was you do what you want, but you add, I think, like two stress to, to what goes on. But the problem was because you were rolling so low, the player felt like they screwed up. And that then almost kind of changed the way the fiction went. Like they just, oh, well, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. And I was like, oh, okay, this just isn't working. And so, yeah, so like I kind of just rejogged and rejogged. And like it was, like as I was saying like earlier at the beginning of this, like I look at Apocalypse World as a tool or a very complicated series of tools that can be interchanged to solve my problem. And my problem was how can I get hyper-competent professionals with shared consciousness to kick ass and kind of suck and make it work. And I mean, ultimately, so like as many people, there's a lot of moving parts in the game. Um, and later versions, it was all about stripping down moving parts. Um, yeah. The best example I can give of that was uh, health. This is a great example was... Oh, gosh. Uh, so every Apocalypse World game has health. Um, you have a bunch of uh, tracks, you take damage, you take harm, and mm-hmm. these have effects, usually penalties on your die rolls. Well, there's two things that happen in a hyper-competent game. One, you take damage and you take penalties, so now you start sucking really bad, which is okay because you're beat up, but still sometimes not so good, uh, especially when I was having trouble already with the underlying mechanics of people falling into this six-minus state and sucking. And yeah. then also, you know, it was like another thing. And I was playing a playtest last Gen Con, and someone uh, who was one of the people who worked on... Oh, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the game. Anyways, cool game with tags, and it has some interesting harm mechanics and stuff like this. And the person just said, well, it feels like a tag-on. It feels like you're using this because it's part of Apocalypse World. Mm. And I sometimes feel like people use parts of games they're hacking because, well, it's always there. Of course I have a harm system. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's what I... That was my actual... My response to the guy was, well, of course I have a harm system because Apocalypse World has a harm system. The uh, Then I was like... I was thinking about it and I was like, well, how would I not have a harm system? And... Then I had this, uh, I had a gonzo idea while I was still at Gen Con, and I was like, this will not work, but I'll try it. And so I said, <laughs> okay, so the next group that came, I just said, ignore these, like I s- sketched off the health tracks, and I said, okay, the way it's going to work is every time you take damage, it hits the stress tracks instead of you. You get angrier, you get more fearful, you get whatever, 
Um, and if, it, if a feedback happens, then something bad will happen, like you'll get knocked out or something. And I ran it. And I was like, oh, this is way cool because what was happening was sort of way more fun, heroic stuff because, you know, people would get injured, but then it would increase the stress track of like, well, now you're scared because you're on fire. Well, this makes sense. <laughs> um, and then it, 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 it helped re- increase the stress tracks, which changed the way people role played. And then on top of that, it also led to people, the feedback occurring a bit more often, which, so when a feedback happens, the stress track drains to, it goes back to zero. But the GM basically, almost like mean currency, looks at the players and said, okay, here's four rate, here's four emotional complications. I'm going to give one to each of you, or I can actually put many of them on one person if I'm really mean. And, but it's because you may not be using a skill at the time, it's like you have to bring this into the fiction as fast as humanly possible. Um, and usually people are in really terrible places. Like, I'm hanging on to my friend who is hanging on to the helicopter. And I'm like, all right, well, your complication is leave something you care about behind. And you're like, okay, I let go. You know, yeah. and um, and so one of the things is, so there's a couple, that's like all mechanical stuff. And uh, so I, I always kind of came back to the emotions all the time. And so that, even though there's a bunch of moving parts, that stays centered because it all comes back to, okay, you're always moving in these emotions. The stress track is always what what we should pay attention to narratively. The GM can increase the stress track too. Like, so the GM can, mm-hmm. can create moves in play where he, where they offer you things. Uh, and if you push away from that emotion, it would normally be good in the real world, except when you bottle up an emotion in the headspace, it, technically kind of pops, like almost kind of gets farted out and, and gets mm-hmm. shared into everybody else's space. So you, you know, you put down the bribe uh, because you're not going to let your ego get the better of you. Uh, but then, uh, and you do so in the fiction, but then the ego track goes up a point or two and everybody else in the group gives you kind of a mean look, you know, you should have just taken the bribe. <laughs> um, or like, you know, you're caught in a burning car and, and, you know, like if you, if you stay there, um, you won't cause fear to 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 release, uh, but obviously you want to get to the burning car, so you do. You run, and that fear kind of spills out in, into the headspace. Um, so there's a lot of things where uh, I, I I kind of I'm a I'm a big action movie adventure kind of GM. Like I like blowing mm-hmm. stuff up. Uh, if a building doesn't blow up in headspace, uh, every Gen Con game, <laughs> the, a building is falling. I just guarantee it. Um, nice. But I actually feel like there are people who will probably run infinitely more spectacular headspace games than I can because they will be like really emotionally in tune. Like the, the really mean headspace stuff is when people get way too emotionally invested in what's going on and then these emotions start bleeding out. Um, mm-hmm. And then everything kind of goes downhill. Do you ever have to kind of cajole anyone to role play with the stress track there on the table, kind of giving them clues, or do they just kind of latch onto it uh, and, and go for it? Like, if it sort of gradually goes up, people generally pay maybe less attention to it. But I think it's okay. more like, uh, like I had some good things where, like, whenever it's punched up, like when it goes up by a point, like by two points, because something's mm-hmm. happened in the fiction, like you know, like in. Um, so one thing that like, like like really common some some sort of general things that so things that don't involve mechanics because there's a bunch of, I mean there's a bunch of mechanics in this game but there's all sorts of things that so players like because you have sh- this shared consciousness uh, one of the catches with the technology which is part of the game is you can't turn it off so everything you say everything you do everybody else in the party always knows what's going on 
Uh, everybody always has a vague idea where everyone else is. Everyone has a pretty good idea what happened in the conversation, the private conversation you just had with the corporate executive. What this means, interestingly, is no one's ever left out. Um, you can have a party. Uh, the best headspace games are when the GM splits the party because not only does it force the players to use headspace skills more often, which of course creates mm-hmm. more emotional complications, um, it creates a lot of interesting sort of orchestrated chaos because what happens yeah. is the all the players are always aware of what's going on. So you know Bob's in a shootout down the street and Jill is uh, talking to a corporate security person and Bob is huddled in a in a in a in a restroom um, with a bunch of a bunch of hostages or something like this. Everybody knows what's going on. So everybody can plan that. And everybody also knows when something's gone terribly awry. So mm-hmm. oh well um Bob's heading down the street being chased by guards. He doesn't have to communicate this. We all know this. So now how can we best help Bob? Uh, okay, well I can go over here. And then while doing that, Bob knows exactly where you are. Also the same thing happens even in conversations. Like I've had uh, it's a fun game to run. Um, the most crazy game I've ever did, I did a game with five people. At the beginning of the game, they were all in different areas of the city. And over the course of the four-hour game, they never once entered the same physical room with each other. So nice. they were all doing different things. and uh, But they were all, be, you know, essentially because everyone was everyone else. But right. things were really complicated. And so it would be, uh, it was, it was a tricky thing to GM because you're constantly bouncing back and forth. But in some ways, you're not always bouncing back and forth because any, like, two players have a conversation. Everyone knows that. There's no, um, everything that happens at the table stays at the table in this game, as opposed to, like, all sorts of secret conversations where, as players, we now have to pretend that we don't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's really weird when people start realizing, hey, wait a second, I actually know what just happened in that room. So can I do something about that? I'm like, sure. You can even talk to your friend who's in a conversation with another NPC. Um, and so you can have essentially one player in a conversation with an NPC and four other players in that conversation uh, oh, well, you, you should ask the, the the person about this. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And because all this conversation is like speed of thought, and then somebody says, oh, and then I say, you know. Uh, so you can have some really fun role-playing scenarios. And, you know, obviously, like, you know, like the big pitch is no one gets the, – the tech is never stuck in the van. Uh, yeah. Because the tech is just as good a gunfighter as the Ronin, uh, but he has to be in the building in order to bring those skills to bear. And, and you know, conversely, you can also uh, get, like, other people – you know, using the tech skills. So Mm -hmm. very cool. And I I feel like that, that solves a problem that I feel like I have with one of my groups a lot is you're not in that room or you didn't follow them. You're still, you're somewhere else. Like don't, it's, it's nice to just let everybody know everything. That's cool though about the about the role playing. Like I, I saw that too happen with this group is that they guys that would normally not role play as much in any other system or setting, um, something about seeing that track and getting those emotional complications just hook them right away. I, I will say like the track in the middle of the table is the single best part of the whole game. It, the idea that you're all of your interactions, you know, do something on this and everyone can see that. So even if they're not in the scene, like if, if you do something that influences the track, even in a positive way, like there's things players can do to bring the track down. Um, you could control your emotions and all that stuff. But I mean, more often than not, the track is always going up until it explodes and then it resets and then it keeps going back up again. But as it rashes up, 
it's changing ever the way everyone else behaves, even in scenes that have nothing to do with what's going on. Bob's stuck in a burning building and fear's ratcheting up. Meanwhile, I'm attempting to get the schmooze on with some hustler, but my fear is ratcheting up. So I feel, so then I suddenly start role-playing like maybe the feds are in this room and stuff like Mm -hmm. this. So I start getting extra precautious where I shouldn't be. So I'm not screwing up because I'm still competent. Like I can definitely, you know, coax this person into doing, but now I'm looking over my shoulder and then the, then it leads to like the GM going, well, they seem to be paying a lot of attention to like, are you being followed? You know, and then suddenly, so, yeah. so suddenly, because one player is stuck in a burning building, it's it's dribbled off and created this tangential sort of emotional thing that is creating fiction and scenes that have nothing to do with them. And that's, I mean, that's great. And people can see that in front of them. Um, and there's usually, uh, I always find like the, the feedback invariably seems to blow at really inopportune times. But when it resets, <laughs> there's like this collective sigh in the room. They're like, oh, okay, well, that's not going to happen probably for a bit. Um, so we're okay, you know. Yeah. Um, and then something else goes terribly awry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's also kind of neat. It's fun, too, because, I mean, there's all sorts of things like, because the health tracks get translated into stress, I don't have to be wor- as as worried about killing people. So death in this game is a... Uh, I really went hardcore indie with death in this game in the sense that when... Uh, like, so if feedback occurs when you take damage, you are taken out. And you, mm-hmm. as a player, decide I'm either knocked unconscious, in which case somebody can try to resuscitate you, or I'm dead. And if you're dead, then you can do something heroic in the scene and then die. But it's your option. So as a GM, I can never... F- explicitly force a player to die. Although, I mean, if a guy fell off, if somebody fell off a roof of a building, probably dead, but we never know. So death is always on the table, but only if players want it to be. Um, Death does weird things too in this game. Like one of the, one of the uh, death ultimately became a solution to a mechanical problem in this game, which was, so each player has, brings three skills to the table. Well, what happens in a small Mm -hmm. game? You know, because so there's six operators, there's three unique skills each. Great. So we have, you know, 18 skills to draw upon. Uh, if I play this game with three people, we only have nine. So we're missing a huge portion of skills. So, you know, so if no one takes these these characters, we're not going to have these skills. And so I struggled with that for a long time. And then uh, the idea of, well... If a character dies, his consciousness is stuck in the headspace, stuck around. And then so you become like a ghost operator, like a ghost in the machine. And mm-hmm. so functionally, the NPC treats you as the, the GM treats you as an NPC when you die and you continue to persist. But mechanically, one of your skills stays and people can access it. Um, and cool. the emotional baggage change. The, the emotional baggage does change, though. The emotional baggage changes from whatever your character's original memories were to the emotions you were going through uh, in the scene of your death. And so then anyone can use that skill. They don't have access to the other two skills. So if you play with three people, the other three playbooks are essentially dead operators stuck in the headspace, and you'll p- the party will pick one skill from each of them that they want. Um, and they will continue to have access. If you play with five people, you end up with one ghost operator. Uh, you take one. If you play with four, you get two. It, it, it's fun for small groups because it gives you a little bit extra diversity of skills. Uh, it's great in one shots because generally what I've always done is if there's there's always ghost operators, it's just a matter of how many of them, and I always kill them in the in the introductory scene. So mm-hmm. they're usually the reason why emotions are going bad because a bomb just blew up and killed two party members, and things are going bad. Oof. Oh. <laughs> 
So the operators, actually, uh, something that I'm super curious about when I see very genre specific games like this coming up with these archetypes, was that a process or is that something that once you're so like eyeballs deep in this genre, you're like, of course, there's a tech. Of course, there's a Ronin like um, some of them were easier than others. Uh, I, the, the hardest thing was getting it to the tight six. I always knew there was going to be certain archetypes. Like there had to be the, the guns person and there had to be the tech. And then mm-hmm. I was like, well, there needs to be these other people though. And who are they? Um, uh, so yeah. So in this game, there is the Ronin who is your master of disaster and ultimate assassin, not ultimate assassin, your ultimate sort of mercenary uh, mm-hmm. soldier. There's your tech who's the ultimate engineer uh, who has drones, um, who has hacking, uh, you have your infiltrator who is uh, master of disguise uh, and infiltration and melee skills and whatnot. You have the runner, which I think was probably one of the more fun characters to create, which was a, a character who's all defined by mobility. So mm-hmm. this character has drive, uh, so you can, or pilot, I should say, so you can pilot anything, you know, from a bicycle to a, a jet fighter. Um, you have parkour, which uh, players have way too much fun with. Um, I think every game I've ever played, somebody always takes the runner, and if the runner is dead, parkour is the skill that's taken. And uh, people just seem to have way too much fun with it. Uh, I, I sort of think yep. that there needs to be a parkour role-playing game. I imagine there probably is somewhere that I'm not aware of, uh, because people would love that. Uh, and then um, uh, you have your white coat, uh, which is kind of like if you so white coat's a CIA spy term for uh, someone who gives you like medical kind of help um, mm-hmm. and who's like you know super smart and stuff like that and so the white coat is kind of like what if you took Sherlock Holmes and Watson and fused them together so you have investigative skills and you also have like psychology and medical skills you also have oh handler so like you know the man the man with the plan kind of character. And so the skills in this game are, you know, some of them have very outward, uh, like, clear purposes, you know, like firearms, okay. Uh, but then the skills represent everything. So it could be knowledge about firearms. It could be where guns could be bought. You could also, like, some of the skills have more esoteric uses or, I should say, more creative uses. So the handler, for example, has contingency. So I didn't want a game that was all about coming up with a four-hour battle plan. So contingency is like, well, I, of course there's a van down the street with uh, a getaway car or something like that. And so that's what contingency is in this game. So you don't have to you know, befuddle yourself with detailed uh, architectural blueprints, unless you really like that kind of thing. Some someone out there does. So <laughs> I knew several of the archetypes were definitely going to be present. Mm-hmm. Naming them was a lot. I, there was more work done on skill definition, like what three skills each would get. There was a long time where you know, like I wanted some skills to have overlaps, but there was a couple times in early play tests where you know, like obviously, if you, when people are play testing the game and they only ever use two of the skills, you know. Um, and part of it's also, like, some of the skills are obviously more useful in a long play scenario than in a mm-hmm. short play. Um, like, a lot of the social networking, like, if you start the game as a one-shot kind of battle royale that leads to a kind of exit strategy kind of game, you know, net- social networking skills are probably low on the priority list of engagement. Uh, but right into the second session, when suddenly you're trying to piece together what happened, um, then investigation becomes at the forefront, so... And there's a lot of there's a lot of rules for long play. Uh, the game is 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 
meant to handle long play, I guess, I guess as elegantly as it can um, in terms of uh, it provides a lot of tools for each corporation is trying to change the world uh, in a bad way uh, mm-hmm. in their favor. And so I guess one of the big changes or my, I don't know, my innovation, my whatever you want to call it was, so there's objective clocks in, in most, uh, well, pretty well all of Oxford World games. Yeah. And John Harper gave a lot of food for thought to me uh, with Blades in the Dark on how, um, you know, what is a better way of describing objective clocks? And then I started thinking about some of the ideas that John Harper had. And then I was like, hey, well, this game is all about corporations and operate and operators. Let's just outright say that these clocks are tuned that way. And so uh, basically the way every objective clock in this game functions exactly the same way. There are six slices. Three of them are operator. Three of them are corporate. The clock always resolves when any three slices are filled, period. So if the any time there's three successive operator successes, then the operators declare a fiction that is true in whatever they were doing. Um, and then when there's margins in between, it's basically uh, if it's like two to one, you declare something and then the other side says, but. And then if it's like one to two, it's like you declare something and they say, and. And if you completely failed and the company says uh, you didn't get past the security system and you're currently in jail. Um, and so in short term play, like if you play this in a one shot, the objective clocks are designed around objectives that the the, care, the operators are trying to succeed in. Uh, and so they create sort of temporary fictions that are true for the session. Like we've disarmed the security fence. We got the hostages. We saved the hostages. But in long play, these clocks sort of flow up. And so your, if you won one clock but lost two clocks, then that flows up to uh, essentially the corporations have projects and they have miles. They have quite literally, it's terrible. Uh, you have time, cost, and quality milestones that they measure as their goals of achieving their what they want. And so... Th- each session is kind of represented with three objective clocks that fold up into one of these milestones. So if the players succeeded in two and lost at one, then they would have succeeded two to one in, say, the time milestone because they they got the corporation out of the problem project or whatever before they could get there, and that's in their favor. And then this flows up to the sort of master dystopian clock, which is the corporation trying to change the world in their favor. And so the the dystopian clock functions exactly the same as objective clocks, uh, but it plays out over the course of about three sessions. And then at the end of the three sessions, based on whether the corporation won or lost, the corporation gets to make a statement about the world uh, that is now true. Um, and, oh and, or the players can make that sort of an and or but statement kind of thing. So if the players completely yeah. win, the players get to make like the opposite of a dystopia, you know, like the, yeah. uh, blah, blah, blah company. Not only does blah, blah, blah company not take control of the, uh, security, uh, for the police forces, but, um, there is now uh, new expanded government, government powers and civilian oversight boards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So. You can't, that's victory in this game, which is yeah. kind of harsh, but it's cyberpunk, so suck it up. Yeah, right. <laughs> it is about three sessions or so, like, um, is there room to keep playing after yeah, that so larger clock? Yeah, okay. so the way the game in long play, functionally, what happens is, uh, so each corporation uh, continues to act. And so in the first game, you just deal with one company's goals. And in future sessions, the GM will act. 
activate additional corporations. So there will be multiple dystopian clocks going on at the same time. And so basically what happens in this game is you're really good at what you do and you're more like more than likely in direct confrontation with the company going to win, but you can't mm-hmm. be everywhere at once. So you have to divide and conquer and or try to save what you can. And so what will happen in long play is you will be kind of spreading out your resources farther and farther, trying to, okay, what's the minimum we need to just sort of hold them at bay and do this other thing? Or do we just want to crush this company? In which case we're going to, maybe you just accept, okay, you know what? Uh, Pacific Security Solutions is going to privatize the security force, but we are going to overthrow the energy company. Uh, And so you just go to town on them. But there is going to be, you know, events that get created that may start working against you because maybe now the security forces are privatized. And so they're, you know, no longer is it just Joe police. It's like a corporate lackey who's going to tell everybody what's going on and so on and so forth. So, yeah, the, yeah. the game can totally play long. I've played um, I've done sort of limited long play play testing. I've, I've not okay. done I haven't like if anyone runs this game and runs like 10 sessions, I'd love to hear about how it worked because it's it's just it. That's a really hard thing to do. Uh, working on a game like it's hard enough just like I'm army of wanting this so right every play test up until now has it's only recently in the last like six months that people were like we ran your game I'm like woohoo yeah uh, so I, I can imagine every time you run it you've got to change things too so it's hard to it's uh, the to book's, keep, the, keep a version yeah. yeah the book's done now it's not changing yeah. anymore so um mm. if you find a typo don't tell me <laughs> I just don't want to know yeah no I'm really happy with those so well, the, the, the cyberpunkness was actually one of the notes that I made um, as I was reading through this book. Like, there were points in the fluff of this world that, like, I just, I had to get up and walk around and get a glass of water, like, reading about privatized police. I was just like, I, I need five minutes to, like, come back to this. So, like, how how difficult is this to write this future? Um, or do you take some some dark pleasure in it? <laughs> uh, well, I one of the successes I did with this is that I hired a bunch of really good writers. Um, ah. And so I brought all these things together. So, like, throughout the book, um, yeah, I have, like, a plethora of writers on this project. Uh, uh, mostly because I was really working hard on the game design elements, and I was like, mm-hmm. I want to hire some really good writers. So... Uh, Lillian Cohen Moore did a lot of the stuff in the first chapter about, you know, how to play the game with a social contract and how to play. Oh, that was wonderful. Yeah. I wanted to, well, to point is, that out to people. Like, yeah. So the game accepts, you know, like not only is this like, uh, trust me, this is a game where the X guard, I explain the X guard before I start talking about what headspace is when I run this at a con. Uh, yeah. it, uh, it's like everything. It's all about making people comfortable in the space that they're in. And in mm-hmm. a game, uh, that deals with, I mean, the entire pretense of this game is you're playing Bob's PTSD. This might trigger some things. So it's good to get that out on the table. So, like, you know, you want to have things be fun, avoid things that you can. So she talks a lot about tricks and tools on, on how to play the game. Um, she did also a lot of the really wonderful discussion. Uh, she wrote all the operator descriptions, skill descriptions, trying to keep that sort of thematically into the emotions. Um, Brian Engard, uh, who does a lot of writing for a whole bunch of different RPGs, um, but he loves cyberpunk. And I said to him, <laughs> I said, hey, uh, would you like to run, would you like to write the tech chapter of my game? And just like, he's like, well, what do you want me to do? And I like, my guidance was quite literally something along those lines. Like, I want you to thrill me on a dark cyberpunk world that is not tied to any particular fiction. Because, of course, the game t- plugs into whatever setting. So mm-hmm. the 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 world is like 
purposely generic, um, but I wanted it to be interesting. Like I wanted like make a believable de- generic dystopia that people probably don't want to live in, but would be enthusiastic to explore. And yeah. so he's like, that sounds like writing porn. And I'm like, I'm not <laughs> sure if that's good, but go ahead. And I have never seen a writer turn words around so fast. Um, and it was a joy to read them. Um, and then, um, uh, Jason Pitt helped me a lot, uh, from Genesis Legging, helped, helped me a lot with, uh, reinterpreting Apocalypse World from a GM and how to, like, obviously this game deviates a lot from Apocalypse World, so the GM chapter had to reflect this deviation and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talk to a player, like a GM and say, okay, have you run Apocalypse World? Great. If you haven't, okay. Cause it's one of, this is one of those games where, because it does deviate so much, sometimes you don't want to have, you know, like you want to provide enough information that you can understand this is how it does and how to, how to run the game, even with that baggage. Um, and then, uh, Rob Donahue, who, uh, is, uh, co-founder of uh, Evil Hat, he uh, through he graciously came on board to write the most corporate of corporate chapters. Um, and then when Nathan Paletta, who did the layout for this book, um, who did Worldwide Wrestling and a bunch of other things, uh, Nathan was like, I got this really cool idea for doing the corporate chapter. And I'm like, what? It's like, I'll send it to you. And so he did the corporate chapter entirely, or at least a good portion of it, entirely as a Microsoft PowerPoint presentation. And he did like it, including those default terrible bullets that have like really bad paragraph breaks. And he's like, this is the highlight of my career making these bullets in a professionally published game. Um, And like, it's just like, I I saw them and I just like, I got goosebumps because I was like, wow, this is like my day job. Um, (laughs) Except they're talking about like the corporate uh, water project in blah, 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 you know? And so I was just like, oh, this is too much. So... Yeah, so it's it's been a lot of fun, um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, and Brian Patterson who does uh, D twenty Monkey, he did all the artwork, um, which is quite a deviation also from kind of everything deviates about this game. I guess that's just my point. Yeah. Um, I, I was just I was kind of like, uh, I so my I love Akira and Ghost in the Shell, the mangas. Mm-hmm. I like that the movies are fine, but um, mm-hmm. I love the manga, and so. And I was on a big Borderlands 2 uh, play when I was doing this. And so my art direction for the entire book was I want Akira manga meets Borderlands 2. So I want colorful, bright characters in a really terrible world. Um, Like, I don't need rained out dystopia. We can I can turn on Blade Runner and get that to my heart's content. And there's plenty of other games out there. So I really wanted that kind of... I wouldn't say anime, like, you know, I wanted an anime-esque to it. Like, I wanted hero, like, heroic-looking characters. I wanted this, I wanted this comic book vibe, and it was really fantastic. Yes, he definitely does that. And and so, you know, but he he loved working on this because, uh, you know, I mean, I I think to a degree he gets typecast as kind of a comic book guy, and and he does a lot of fantasy work and stuff like that with with D20 Monkey, and he just loved it. And I loved seeing the stuff because I was like, hey... Can you uh, write a? Can you do a thing with like a blown up fiery car? And he's like, "Can I?" You know, and um, yeah, and we really wanted to make like diverse artwork, and so you know, like you know, having mm-hmm. like you know, uh, people of color, you know, women, men, transgender, all that kind of thing, and so trying to make that the game is as accessible as possible. That's cool. Yeah, the the art was another thing I wanted to point out because it really shows. I feel like how much fun he had making those pieces. Like it's they look really cool. Yeah, and uh, like one of the 
I think my favorite stretch, well, not sorry, not stretch goal, but backer tiers was I had a this insane tier that I really didn't think anyone would pay for, but it was a tier where Brian Patterson would take a photo you sent him of yourself and turn it into cyberpunk artwork in the same style. And so oh, cool. four people did this, including, um, well, my, my, my partner, uh, got it done for her steps for her son. So, uh, my step, Aww. my stepson's got some art in the book. He doesn't know about yet. So, um, <laughs> okay, but, well, uh, I won't tell him, yeah. So, and, uh, yeah, but, uh, no, it's, uh, I really like the artwork that he's done. Uh, I've brought Brian back on to do the artwork for this, the settings book. Um, and, nice. uh, if anyone's a, so the settings book is probably going to come out, well, it'll definitely come out after Gen Con. Uh, most of the writing is done at this point and most of the editing is done at this point. Um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of art and maps that have to get done. And then the layout will be, uh, it's going to be like middle of summer, I think. But at this point in time, I think everybody will just be really happy to get their books. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that's more it's, or less resolved. Yeah, it's squared away. And I'm doing, cool. uh, if... Well, actually, this will obviously not help because, yeah, so this week uh, in Ottawa, I'm doing my uh, book release party Mm. uh, on Friday this this week, and uh, I'm doing, like, a role-playing event at a local board game cafe, so new people are going to try this game, so nice. that's always fun. That's exciting. And then Gen Con in two weeks, so... Which I think yes. you're going down there, too, right? I, I will be, yeah. This episode will actually come out after Gen Con. Okay. Um... But yeah, for anybody who's listening, Mark was at Gen Con. Hope you didn't miss him. Yeah, like, <laughs> something like that. If yeah. you're listening, but by by the time this comes out, uh, I think my backers should be getting their books, or should, hopefully. Yeah. And um, I'm hoping also to have the book on available through like some means for for print purchases and stuff like that. Cool. Looking forward to it. Oh, I think uh, something we didn't talk about, but is a nice section in the book uh, for any cyberpunk enthusiasts uh, upgrades. I think the subs the subheading is literally candy store. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I really wanted uh, upgrades to be okay. Like, so first of all, I like crunch. Um, I love crunch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I ran a camp. Whenever people are like, "Really? Do you really love crunch?" And I'm like, "I ran Burning Empires for a year. Oh yeah, I like crunch." Um, <laughs> I ran Burning Empires in my own universe with another GM, I should say. So it's just, I'm like, oh, let's make this is even more insane. We had spreadsheets just to manage our NPCs. Uh, oh, boy. But uh, it's a fun game, but you really have to love it. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, So I didn't want that, obviously, with this kind of game. But I wanted, the, I wanted cybernetics to be important, but yeah. I wanted them to be, like, not, like, this is the kind of game where, like, if you if you describe your character and you're like, um, I'm a cyber body. Okay, sure. Uh, you you can put any cybernetics you want on your character visually, um, and no one, mm-hmm. the system, I don't, no one cares. So the idea yeah. with upgrades were these were like next generation. This, this is the kind of thing where because you've been working for these companies for so long, you've gotten mm-hmm. like the best version of the cyber arm or the best version of cyber eyes or the whatever. And so that's what these represent. And so they're very specific things that are really, f- uh, some of them have very heavy, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, beats within, within the genre between, mm-hmm. you know, like Wolverine claws or monofilament whips, uh, or stuff like that or cyber legs and things like this. And, uh, Brian Engard wrote terrible, 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 jokey text that makes it sound both it's wonderful so and terrible at the same time. Yeah. And so, like, when you make your characters, all the characters start with one of these, which allow you to do... They give you something that's not 
kind of each of the character the operator starts with one piece that is kind of like a uh, an accent of their character, but not necessarily hardcore embedded. And if you, depending mm-hmm. how you play the game, like if you play this game in the future, um, you know, like one of the optional things I say is like, you know, feel free to pick any upgrade you want. Cause there's like 20 of them in the game that are, a lot of them yeah. are not used. Um, yep. if you play long play, you can spend your experience on getting upgrades and that kind of thing. Yeah, we had just done the one shot, so I think I don't know if anybody, any of us, really took a look at the list when we were playing it. But going back through it, it was like, oh my god, the options and the things that you're able to do, and it it is it is a literal candy store. Yeah, and I, I also really wanted them to feed back in. So like a lot of the uh, a lot of things, uh, a lot of the upgrades, for example, feed directly back into the game mechanics of the game. So uh, you know, pain editor, for example, is like you. Uh, you pick a stress track, and when you take damage on that stress track, you can't. The feedback can't cause you uh, to blank out, to be taken out. So you go, okay, well, uh, uh, f- you know, rage is not, you know, when so when you take rage damage, it still causes the feedback, uh, mm-hmm. but the feedback doesn't knock you out. So in 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 a sense, you didn't feel anything, kind of thing. Um, yeah. So which gets to be funny because uh, what can happen is you can have a player who has that. And they're like, I want the damage to go to my rage. And everybody else in the party is like, yes, but I'm hanging on to the side of the building. I really don't want a rage <laughs> complication right now, you know. Uh, so you, you can get some fun stuff like that. There's, um, you know, and some of them have, like, you know, drugs that can alter states and, and things like that. And you can have all sorts of terrible fun. Like, if you're a really mean GM, which basically all GMs are, you can have fun things. I've done this in games where, you know, players take drugs and they get the physical side effects and then the emotional side effects bleed off into the headspace. So everybody else deals with problems with it. You can give people nightmares and have them appear in the real world. You can do all sorts of fun, terrible, terrible, terrible things to your party members in this game. Awesome. (laughs) Is there anything else you wanted to ask? Yeah, like I can keep asking you questions about this. I think uh, one other question that I was definitely curious about, which maybe some people who are now running the game will have to clue us in on and and let us know about, is the regrets. Uh, we we were talking about earlier. You can reveal those regrets to get uh, you know bonuses to or, or make your role better, um, but you only have one of those at least per session. So in in campaigns, how does that how does that or what does that look like if you have people who are willing to to share these regrets and then essentially rack them up? I guess. So the the way it works in campaign play is basically so once a session you can reveal your regret, mm-hmm. uh, and then this also gives you a, reveals your drive to the party, which is like the thing you want to do to overcome your regret, and then uh, essentially in long play uh, at the beginning of the next session you create a new regret. Um, I mean, you guys have, all the characters have, I mean, persisted in a world of terrible things, and you've no doubt done a lot of terrible things. Um, you can do sort of one of two things. Uh, you can either create, a, like, a, a facet. So, I mean, one thing we didn't really explain, but when when the regret is revealed in play, uh, the player narrates a scene from their perspective of the regret playing out, um, like the terrible deed that they did. And then the players offer uh, up, terrible leading questions um, <laughs> and the narrative continues with them answering those questions. And so usually like the players ask actually, it's actually hard coded in the rules. The GM is not allowed to ask leading questions. Like this is exclusively mm-hmm. a player fun time. And so people ask uh, all sorts of terrible, terrible questions. I have a great story about this, but I want to finish explaining this, but the, um, so people ask terrible questions, and then mm-hmm. you you answer those questions, and when everyone's happy, you pop back into the real world, and it was like a blink of time went by, and then you 
kick butt. Um, when you one, one of the things you can do in the future, which I think would be the most common element, is the regrets are usually really big in scope. Like, I had a direct hand and blah. And so you can kind of zoom in on an element or maybe possibly one of the questions people had and then, like, you know, rewrite your regret as, like, well, I didn't help that one woman uh, during the stampede of the riot or something like that. And that would be sort of... It, like variations and slices of the original regret is certainly one possible way. And then the other is you just go, okay, well, I was a hired killer. Uh, there's obviously some terrible things I've done. And so you just come up with some new crazy idea uh, of something that you did in the past that haunts you. Um, and you write that down and then that can get revealed in play. Your drive doesn't change. Like your core drive is still tied to your original terrible thing that had to do with the corporate secret. Uh, mm-hmm. But your regret, uh, it, it has a lot more play to it. Um, yeah. There was a playtest I ran at Gen Con last year, which uh, still is the greatest moment I've ever had running this game, where I ran a, uh, a scenario where they were trying to get a, uh, a, a an employee of a company safely out of a corporate compound. And they spent two hours evading security, blowing up helicopters, getting this person from the middle of this corporate compound to the roof. And right at the roof, they're like, we're right at the end of the session. And right at the roof, some terrible thing happened. And one of the players revealed their regret. And they revealed their regret as being like, uh, doing all these terrible things for this, uh, person to that, that, that was all like three H energy technology manipulations and stuff like this. And then one of the party members says, um, like the woman that they're trying to, uh, uh, extra, uh, extract says, was she, because she was a corporate employee, was she your corporate boss while this happened? Like, is she the one who ordered you to do this? And the other player is like, yes. Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah. So the person we're trying to, to we're trying to, the life we're trying to save, she's the one who ordered me to do these terrible things. And then it's like, okay. And then we flash back to the, 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 the present time. And a separate player who wasn't the one that asked the question and wasn't the one who answered turns to the uh, person that they've just spent two hours, almost killed themselves trying to get out of this place and says, this is for everything you did to my friend and shoots her dead on the roof. And I'm just oh like, okay, God. I win. Like as the GM, I'm like, this is great. I can't, I can't top that. So. Oh boy. So people are basically, you know, it's like you're heroic, but you're still pretty terrible people. So yeah, um, and and I, I think everybody has different levels of fun with that. Like it takes people a while when they get into the game at points. They're like, because I find usually in the character creation stage, it's when people realize that it's kind of I'm like, man, I, none of these questions are good. I did some terrible yeah. things, and I'm like, mm. yes, yes, you did. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, it's sort of a question of how terrible you are um, now. So. Very cool. Well, it sounds like you really enjoyed the game. And and a friend of yes. mine, uh, as it turns out, ran it for you. So Alex Trepping. Mm-hmm. So uh, a shout out to Alex. Yeah, it was lots of fun. We Like I said, we only got to do the one shot. Um, but we, we may revisit that, I think. It was very enjoyable. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, like we mentioned earlier, this is coming out after Gen Con. But do you have other convention plans that you're going to be at in the near future? Or um, So the, the I kind of the only the circuit that I can afford between uh, day job yeah. and everything else, I basically do Gen Con, uh, Metatopia and Dreamation. Okay. And I think next year I'll do what is it? I think it's Breaking Out Con is in Toronto or something. Breakdown okay. con, breakout con, I think it's something like that. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, so no, I'm not. It's just like you know, it's that one person thing. So there's there's only so much. I mean, one of the things that I'm really hoping for is is that once I get a bit of, well, hopefully people really enjoy the game, and then I mean, what I'm really looking for is like other people to run the game at at, at, at like games on demand and conventions because I'm only one person, you know. So, right. So yeah, but uh, yeah, I'll be at uh, I'll be at Metatopia, and I'll be playtesting my new game. Actually, at Gen Con, I'll be kind of playtesting around with my new game. So. Yeah. Uh, um, mm-hmm. So I'm moving away from Apocalypse World. This is going to be... I'm attempting to build a system. Um, so oh. th- this will probably end in... Well, it already has started with tears. It started with tears. Yes. So it's, it's going to end <laughs> it's in... uphill from there. It's uphill, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, the short pitch is uh, heavily inspired by the movie Fury, which, if you haven't seen, is really quite cool. It's a mm. World War II tank movie. Uh, with Brad Pitt and a whole bunch of other people. And uh, I watched that movie, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. This would make a great game. I'm a game designer. Oh, no. Um, and so I'm now kind of working on a World War II M4 Sherman tank crew game. Uh, so the idea is a role-playing game where you play a tight-knit group of crew stuck okay. in a tank um, and, in World War II. And so it's... Uh, while I've decided to kind of move away from Apocalypse World, like I could have easily have done Apocalypse World, by, or at least even, even a stand-up Apocalypse World, like normal Apocalypse World, yeah. um, I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to try to make something. Um, so my Ooh. current design is using uh, a poker card deck, and where the the tank represents, the, 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 the game is called Treads, and the, mm-hmm. the tank tread is the river of the cards. So you have a series of cards in the middle of the table in your tank, and then crew members have their, their cards, and then you try to make the best card, the best poker hand you can against the opposition to sort of mm. do narrative things and stuff like this. I don't know whether it'll work, but it's zany and crazy. But Yeah. Something to look forward to. Something people can try out um, if they're going to Metatopia. Yeah, that, so. my hope is to have like a like a quick start ready for Metatopia. And if you see me cool. at Gen Con, I'll be happy to talk it up. Um, and I'll have some stuff to like playtest with. But mostly, if people see me at Gen Con, I'll probably be uh, talking way too much about Headspace. So yeah, it happens. How's your tattoo? Oh my God! Did that ever hurt? <laughs> For those that did don't, you cry? Uh, no, I did not cry. Nice. Uh, my girlfriend held my hand, and uh, there's some extra- extravagant pain photos, uh, and uh, apparently she took video, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, oh, how kind! Uh, which would be variations of me going. I am a big sis. I have a hard time with needles. I don't like getting my blood drawn. So a friend of mine was like, "I don't know, getting a tattoo. You do realize that's a needle gun?" I'm like, "Shh." Uh, yeah, so I've, I've thought about getting a tattoo for a long time, and but never really known what. And so I kind of resigned myself to be the that that schmuck who is always like, I'd love to get a tattoo, but I'm never going to come up with some cool idea for tattoo, so I'm just going to talk about keep getting a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, holy crap, I just spent three years working on this game, and it would be really cool to symbolize that. And uh, it was extra cool because uh, Brianna Reed, who did the logo design, also designed a bunch of symbols, like the sync symbol on the game, which is used all the time. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty cool looking symbol. So why don't I get yeah. that tattooed? And so, yeah, so uh, I got that tattooed last Thursday. It uh, hurt like a son of a bitch. Um, it wasn't too bad. I mean, it was only about like 20 minutes. It was like, it was like oh, by nice. the time it was done, by the time it was done, I was like, is that it? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It looks pretty cool. It's um, a different. 
Um, there's apparently yeah. a whole group of game designers that I've met, uh, like that I already know who every time they finish a game, like Glenn Given, um, uh, games by Playdate. Uh, oh, every yeah, time, yeah. Every, every time he's finished a game, he's tattooed uh, the logo of the game on on, on himself. And uh, apparently Ma- Matthew McFarland from Onyx Path Publishing, uh, every time he's done and who did Chill, uh, mm-hmm. every time he's done something, he he's tattooed it on himself. I'm 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 now thinking when I go to Gen Con, I'm gonna be like going to designers and be like, show me your ink of your game, you know? Yeah, so, cool. cool. So where can we find you and Headspace online? Uh, so my companies, you can uh, find my company at greenhatdesigns.com. Uh, I do cartography for RPGs, um, and uh, Headspace RPG. <laughs> Dot com will take you right to uh, the website for this game. Uh, it, even if you don't buy it, you can download all the playbooks, the maps, the worksheets, so you can kind of get a sense as to how the game sort of looks. Uh, you can download that there. I uh, exist in a almost semi-permanent state on Twitter um, at Slave to yep. the Hat, um, and I'm very active there. I'm on G Plus and Facebook, but um, the best and there's like a G Plus community for for uh, Headspace. So if you have questions, um, as some people have had uh, who have run the game, um, there's some people who've got, who there's a, a growing community of people who have uh, played the game and, uh, and are happy to answer questions. And a lot of the people who are writers of my game are in the community, so they can an- answer questions uh, if people have questions. But yeah, Twitter is probably the best way of getting a hold of me um, and or uh, you know drive through RPG. The game's available at uh, and uh, hopefully other places. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I'm happy you enjoyed the game. Thanks again to Mark for being on the show. If you've got any Headspace questions of your own, he's active on Twitter, and his links are in the show notes. Thanks also to Mark for running some one-shot folks through Headspace character creation at Gen Con, which was such a blast and will hopefully be available for you to enjoy in the not-so-distant future. That's it for this week, heroes. You can find Modifier on Twitter at Modifier Podcast or at the headquarters at modifierpodcast.tumblr.com. You can send comments, questions, or contribution suggestions to modifierpodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes as that helps more people find us. Modifier is a proud member of the OneShot Podcast Network, an amazing family of RPG podcasts that includes incredible shows like OneShot, Campaign, Backstory, and Talking Tabletop. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Modifier. See you then.